When you stand for something that you really value and you decide to speak up for something that's right and speak against injustice, um, there are going to be people who are in power, mostly people in power, who don't want to lose that power and you threaten them. So they're going to be assholes to you. I went down to Tuckwin Glen, which is a gorgeous part of southern Lancaster County with sneaking rivers and rocks and overhanging trees and hiking trails to have a conversation with Melinda Clatterbuck, who lives down there and has done since she was a little kid. Melinda is a very active member in several groups, um, most prominent of which is probably Lancaster Against Pipelines, a.k.a. LAP, which has been fighting a battle against a company called Williams, which is, I think, from Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. And one of the things that Williams does is it builds natural gas pipelines, and it has in several parts of the country, and it wants to now in southern Lancaster County. Uh, The project is called Atlantic Sunrise. And for the last couple of years, or maybe more, um, a small group, but a vibrant group of local people have coalesced into a group of protesters who have exhausted almost every legal angle in attempting to fight against the construction of this pipeline, which would essentially corrupt and destroy all of the land that people own in the area. We've seen natural gas companies do this uh, time and again over the last several decades, um, and they are indeed threatening land that is pretty close to home. In fact, the pipeline will be built uh, in such a way that it traverses a great deal of farmland and territory. Um, actually, it's it, the proposed pipeline right now is just a mile from where I sit at my home in Mountville. I talked to Melinda at her home, which is just across the street from a stream. She owned the land on both sides of the stream. She explains the origin of the house and the connection she has to the land that we stood on while we talked on a beautiful late summer day. Could we have picked a more beautiful day to be out here? Yeah. It's utterly gorgeous. Not so, too hot. No. No. Sun, blue sky. Hear the cicadas? Yeah, uh, yeah they're so loud. You've talked a lot over the last two years about the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline, and and you can say a word or two about this, and the fact that it's threatening mm-hmm. your land and mm-hmm. your livelihood mm-hmm. and your person and your mm-hmm. family. Um, and you have a deep connection to the, to the natural world that, that surrounds you, and it, it right. threatens all of that. And, right. and you can say a word or two about that. I'm less interested in hearing about, like, the fight that you're leading, in a sense that, like, here's what we've done, and here's where okay. we've sort of... I, I'm more interested in... More of the spiritual side, in some ways. Yes, and how it has changed you, mm-hmm. and how you have become sort of a leader of people. Right. Um, and how it has, in a way, I, I suppose, maybe strengthened your connection to this land around you. My mother left when I was just, uh, like, three years old. 
And so my stepmother and father raised me on this property, and it's um, land that we were close to. We worked with our hands in the dirt. We cultivated the earth for flowers. We couldn't do a garden. We don't get enough sun in this little hollow in which we live along the Tuckwan Creek. And um, we spent a lot of time here in the creek. We used to come down and build up the walls, and when a flood came through, we would redirect the water. Um, we have a dam that we built uh, in the middle of the creek my dad built when I was just a kid. And um, we own on both sides of the creek, so we've kind of felt like this is our little plot of heaven in some ways. And um, when I was a, a kid, we also built an addition onto our house that was twice the size of the original house. And there are stone on the outside of the creek. My father was the mason who did all the work, and my sister and I picked all the stones out of the creek. So we spent a lot of time here, and I feel like my childhood and my own development happened through talking to the rocks and nature around here. We live in a very rural setting that was isolated. My parents did not allow us to be involved in extracurricular activities at school. So this world was my world growing up. Right here in this very space. Where we're standing right now, yeah. And there's this huge rock in front of us. A geologist came through about five years ago and did a study of the life of the rocks, um, the history of the rocks along the Tuckwan Creek, and told us that this rock is 500 million years old. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, and it's you can climb up on the top of it. There are trees growing out of the top of it, which is so cool because you can't imagine how roots can even go. And actually, um, my husband and I talked about cutting them down because the roots have to be breaking up the rock and can't be good for the rock formation itself. Mm. So um, this winter we're going to cut a lot of the bigger trees down so they don't do more damage to the rock itself. But um, I wonder if... And I wonder this all the time. I hope we all ask some of these questions. Like, I've always wondered if I feel so connected to the earth because it was instilled in me, because I didn't have friends as a kid, that this is where I found um, nurturing and comfort in, out in the, in the woods around my house when I was alone, or if it's just a part of who I am. Like, I wonder, do some people, are they just drawn to nature, and it's what comforts them and where they find significance and they find life and they value that we have this symbiotic relationship with the earth, that we um, live off of the earth and the earth gives to us. I don't know what we give to the earth. I don't know how symbiotic it is. but um. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, you, know, you don't know whether it's innate or learned, but I think that it is innate. Yeah. And I think what's learned is actually to forget. Right. I think what's learned is to forget the symbiotic relationship that we have because yeah. we are, are, are of the natural world. We're made of all the same elements that we're looking at right here. Right carbon and water right and and when but we are taught to exploit yes and use yeah like and from the very beginning exploit and and use for your own good and that's sort of at the heart of what this project right. is all about right exposing that and mm -hmm. then uh, being honest about it and the damage that that mentality has has wrought mm -hmm. over the last nine ten thousand years of what we call civilization mm -hmm. i mean you talk about that rock being which is 500 million years 500 old. 500 million years so you know how long have humans in some form been around exactly. it's a joke yeah. compared to that rock such a minuscule amount of time it's a joke so like that rock in some sense i <laughs> I had a friend a long time ago when we were teenagers who used this sort of pejoratively, but that rock is laughing at us mm -hmm. um, with all of our petty problems. So do you see that, and since I was a kid, this has been, I've talked to this rock as if it were living. 
The the rock is in the shape of, um, in my mind, uh, a lamb that is uh, lying down and looking back over its right shoulder at its tail. So you can see its mouth, and its mouth is a little open. And since I was a kid, I've always said this was had a life of its own, that I spoke to the rock and it spoke to me, that it even has the shape of an animal in my mind. Right. Yeah. So 10 years ago, when my father died of cancer... Um, my stepmother had left years ago, so it's just been my father here at the house for 20 years on his own. And um, he died of cancer. I lived with him the last six months of his life. And then um, my husband and I sold our house hours away, quit our jobs, and moved here, bought this house so we could keep it in the family. Otherwise, it would have been sold and out of the family. And there was so much history here from my childhood that I wanted to keep it. And... Um, now I'm raising my two girls here in the woods, which is really kind of neat. They're, my children are 18 months apart. My sister and I were 18 months apart. We were raised here. So it's almost like life is repeating itself, except that um, I had a really shitty childhood, and there was a lot of abuse in the home from my stepmother, and we've kind of reclaimed the space and acknowledged its sacredness again rather than the violence that used to exist here. Even this space seemed polluted in some way, and now it does not at all. People come to this home, and there's like, oh, there's a sense of sacredness even in the building and around the property that people seem to experience and I feel that part of that is um, not allowing the violence that happened here to identify the space but allowing the space to be what it is which is naturally beautiful and healing I have certainly felt that here I've been here a number of times and um, there's a great sense of community and mm -hmm. uh, closeness and mm -hmm. caring. Mm -hmm. um, you have done an excellent job of cultivating that here. So, um, And it's funny because it just happened naturally. I don't feel like I worked hard at it. or it's, Which leads up to one of the things you said when we were first talking here, what this is about, is the kind of the community that we helped create and the leader that I've kind of become in this movement right. in our community, which is um, I'm such a reluctant leader. I'm not extroverted. I don't seek attention. I would like to just live in this little hole in the world and be left alone. <laughs> um, but I have such a strong sense of justice and the injustice of the fossil fuel world violating people's rights and violating the earth has inspired me to come out of my shell and pushed me to be outside of myself, to be more than... I want to be, even, for the sake of bringing to people's attention what's happening in a real way. So um, our land here was has been jeopardized with the proposal of this Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline Project by Williams Company, and it would just um, it was proposed to come right through the ridge of our property and cut down, you know, a swath of our trees, and we're surrounded by trees. It's all trees here. You can't see any neighbors. The closest neighbor is over a quarter mile away. And that, that shook me, that possibility even, shook me to the core because I couldn't imagine that someone else would have the right to come here and destroy this sacred space against my will when I pay taxes on it and I own this property. So um, that was the beginning of my research into what's happening to our communities across the country and what's happening potentially to this community for the sake of the fossil fuel industry to make themselves richer. Um, and I started talking with my neighbors about it and talking with the community and holding town hall meetings. And we created a, a core of people who wanted to do something about it, just didn't want to just sit back or roll over and allow the industry to do this without a fight in some way. 
And it's funny, I even laugh at the language of fighting because I'm nonviolent. I'm a pacifist. I've been a pacifist my whole life. I don't kill mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are on my arm biting me. I'm like, I don't want to kill you. Just please go away. <laughs> I warn them, and then sometimes I do kill them in the end. But I'm a pacifist. At least you, war- at least you warn them. I warn them, yeah. Flies yeah. in the house. I make my husband catch and take outside because I don't want to kill I them. I will apologize. <laughs> <laughs> to the, what did my daughter call them yesterday? Thousand leggers. There's a thousand legger on the wall, and I will apologize to it before I smush it. Yeah. Um, and I feel, I mean, it's funny. We just found a ring snake in our house the other day. Um, and a ring snake is just a, a like a pencil-thin snake that doesn't get more than 12 inches usually, has an orange ring around the neck and an orange belly. And I apologize because I almost stepped on it, and I was thinking, but you were here before I was. Like, in general, these animals were here before my home was. I, I feel like I am in violation of their space. So we collected it and took it outside and said, just stay outside, please. Um, and we'll probably have to do, do that again by the end of the week. But, you know, that's how we, that's how we live, and that's how I'm teaching my children to live, that um, everything that has life has value. And I feel like that's something that we're getting away from in our culture. And the way in which natural gas is being extracted from the earth, particularly Marcella Shell region in Pennsylvania right now, violates life, violates the earth. And not only that, but violates natural water because it uses millions of gallons of fresh water for each well site. So there, there's this violation over and over of people's lives, of the land that um, breaks my heart. And I feel like it is negatively affecting not only the earth but humanity on earth and we're blind to it so what I'm trying to do is when I talk with people when I talk with communities is appeal to that essence in them that I think has to somewhere deep down in no matter how um, sold they are on the right of capitalism (laughs) Um, or, <laughs> well, you know, yes, the right of industry, the right of capitalism, the right to build, to advance technologically for civilization to continue to move forward. That's, I think, people, how people see it. Bullshit. Of course it's bullshit, but that's, but that... Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course it's bullshit, but like, let's face it, let's, I hate to bring this up because it's the last thing I want to bring up, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. Let's look at this bullshit presidential election that we're looking at right yeah. now. Oh, I know. With I know. two jokes of candidates. Yeah. And um, the overarching assumption continues to be the work that we're doing is progress. Right. That is to right. say, building. You know, it's all about, uh, you know, entrepreneurship and moving forward and building stuff. I mean, Trump is like, that's the only qualifying, the only quality that he has that he's got to trade on. Yeah, but I, it's, all, it's all empty rhetoric because he's failed course, at that course, in course. so many ways. But it's, but, it's the language yeah. that he's using that, that right. no one right. challenges at all, saying, wait a second, maybe all this building is actually not good for us right. because of what it does to the natural world. Right. But, but that is not, as you said, we've been taught. But what it is to me is the epitome of capitalism gone awry. Um, I just spoke at a local chamber of commerce last week. Ephrata? Yes. How'd that go? It was horrible. I mean, just because what they, they're in the middle of getting natural gas into their community, and that's what they wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about the Atlantic Sunrise Pipeline. They didn't want to talk about natural gas in general. They didn't want to hear how natural gas is extracted. So they're increasing the demand for natural gas is going to increase fracking 
in other communities that are being exploited, they didn't want to hear that. Just and it was right. And, and, and then they have to be responsible to do something with that knowledge. And so it's a bunch of business men, mostly men. There were a couple of women in the room, almost all men. There were 25 people who showed up. And they own businesses in Ephrata, and they say, this is going to lower our bills. This is important for us. And someone, a college student who was interning with a library, who was there with one of the only women in the room, raised his hand and said, we keep saying this is good for the community, but when you say community, who do you mean exactly? People in this room or other people who aren't business owners? And, and it's funny how they sat and thought, and they're like, oh, no, it's good for everybody. Because as a landlord, if I don't need to charge as much, if I don't need to pay as much for energy, I won't need as ch- to charge as, mu- as much to my rent- renters. And I thought, how many times does that really happen? Like, we tell ourselves um, that we're going to, that we're good people because we're providing housing for others. And yet, if I can save a buck and put more money in my pocket, I'm going to do that. I don't care about saving them money. And the people in the room just buy into the lies so they can rationalize making more money for themselves. Um, and and they, very, they were very willing to say this is a stopgap measure. Fossil fuel industry, natural gas is a stopgap energy measure, is what they said over and over again. And I said, okay, so you're saying stopgap for 20 years. You, they're your words, not mine. What are you going to do in those 20 years? What are you doing now to prepare for when those 20 years are up? And you're saying it's cheaper now, but what happens when you increase the demand of something? The prices go up. So you're saying you're going to spend all this money putting pipelines into your community so you can pay less for natural gas, increasing the demand. And do you know how many counties and how many um, communities and boroughs are considering this and, and moving towards this right now? So the demand of natural gas is going to skyrocket. The industry is being blessed by uh, the laws of our land, by the Senate and the Congress, to export natural gas, you really think the natural gas prices are going to stay where they are now? Two, three years from now? That you're not going to be paying more than you do in oil? Like, are you thinking forwardly or not? And if not, who has power over you that you're making these decisions right now? And and they just completely dismissed me. At one point... The guy said, okay, this has been a great exercise for college freshmen or academics to talk about, but let's get back to what we were talking about, Ephrata, getting natural gas into Ephrata. And I said, excuse me, sir, but I find that very demeaning. And he looked at me, and this is a councilman who serves on the council, borough council. He said, then be demeaned, and went on with his conversation. So some people you cannot, they don't want to hear, they won't hear it. And so I walked away from there thinking, okay, you know what? question was, how have I changed in all of this? Mm-hmm. That would have devastated me at one point. Two years ago, I would have been like, oh my gosh, somebody doesn't like me. Someone was rude to me. Because I'm the type of person that most people like, because I don't make waves. I'm a peacemaker. I enjoy all types of people. I really can relate to people of all different personalities. And I, I love human beings. I love being able to see anything in someone else that I admire or I... Um, identify with it, the beauty in each human being. Like I, I have a gift to do that, to really see good in people. Even if they piss me off in some ways, I really value that there are also things in them that are good. And I think that that helps me relate well to people of all kinds. That's why I'm a good counselor. So then when someone doesn't like me, it's kind of hit me to the core at times because I thought, well, who wouldn't like me? Like, I'm nice to everybody. Who wouldn't like me? And I'm getting to the point through this work that I've done that when you stand for something that you really value and you decide to speak up for something that's right and speak against injustice, 
um, there are going to be people who are in power, mostly people in power, who don't want to lose that power, and you threaten them. So they're going to be assholes to you. And my skin has gotten really tough in dealing with those assholes because you know what? You're an asshole. It's not about me. You're an asshole. And I'm okay with that. I can walk away and say, you know, you're really an asshole and you're blind and you're ruining people's lives because of it. You can lash out at me, but it's not about me. One of the sub-themes mm-hmm. of this project has been, like, let's live and thrive in the face of destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, and you do that every day mm-hmm. here. Um, but you know why you need community to remind you to do that? Because it is discouraging and it is hard work and you come constantly up against people like we did in Ephrata where they don't want to hear your message, they're only concerned about themselves and you forget that there are people out there who agree with you because the people who are in power are the ones who make the message. It's the gas industry who has said natural gas is clean, natural gas is good for you, natural gas doesn't pollute the world as much as coal does. So that powerful message with money is what people hear. And so it's easy to forget that's not true. And so for me, what's so important about this work that we do is to be in touch and to build relationships with people who are like-minded. So we have some power together that reminds us of what the truth is because it's very easy to be influenced and get discouraged and we need to encourage and remind each other no we're standing we're standing on what we believe is true and we're standing against that and even if they're bigger and even if they're louder and even if they have more money that we even as little as we are we are standing here against it and i think that's a powerful statement too and we can't do that alone i can't do that alone uh and have you built i mean are you you're in the process of building that community and Mm -hmm. i mean it's one by one, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've seen it. I've seen it. It's small. Mm-hmm. Um, it's here's some. I don't know. Speak about this. It's predominantly like older people. White. I mean, part of that is the community well, that's here. here. That's is, where we are. Right. So it's older, whiter people. Mm-hmm. You need youth. We do have college students too yeah. that are getting more and more involved. They came to by the dozens out to our last uh, Manhunt Township meeting, and that was in the middle of the summer when they were gone. Off. Yeah. So Franklin Marshall College and Millersville University students have gotten more and more involved, and I think that's good. And then we have a group of students from um, Philadelphia who want to come up when we have to do direct action, who said they're going to be behind us. So we have a couple people who reach out to them. But you're right. I think that it has to be um, the people who our work is going to most affect, not just old white folk. Speak to the connection between the fight for this, like this idyllic little space, to protect and save. Um, for those people to fight the fight to save it, and mm-hmm. to and to fight against, as you very eloquently put, like a profit churning machine. Right. What is the connection between that and the fights that are being fought? Let's say right in Lancaster City mm-hmm. with the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And things of that nature, which are forefront on the political agenda today, or should be, um, can we draw lines between the two, and can we therefore somehow join forces? I think um, more and more, I've been reading a lot about this lately, that uh, certainly Chris Hedges' Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt was a huge eye-opener for me. And not things that I didn't already know or believe, but pulled it all together in one place. Looking at different locations of sacrifice zones in our culture, in America, um, 
West Virginia with mountaintop removal, um, Jersey, Camden, New Camden, Jersey, Jersey, drug addiction. So, the, you know, different communities, yeah. And um, forget what, Pine Ridge. It was Pine Ridge yeah. and prison system. Right. And then uh, migrant workers right. and how In they're Florida. exploited. Yeah. So uh, what that, that drew a connection to all of this for me, that I really believe our emphasis comes back to this for me on unfettered capitalism that we have created this myth that there is such a thing that's good for us, of unfettered fettered capitalism, that um, there are exploiters and there are those who are exploited. That's how I see it in our culture today. And I feel like that's part of the connection that associates these things. There are the people who are in the majority and they exploit those around them to keep power for themselves and for their own personal betterment who are selfish, who are narcissistic, who are not forward-thinking and are not fully developed as human beings. Like, they are nowhere near Maslow's self-actualization, which I think should be all of our goals, you know? Um, And then there are those who are just barely making it because those on top are constantly pushing them down with their thumbs. And, and, And that's where the battle is. And you can choose any medium for that. It can be fossil fuel owners. It can be big corporations, the Walmarts among us. It can be... Um, city hall, you know that it, it it's very different uh, mediums and venues, but it's the power and those who are being exploited. It's crystal clear to me, obviously. And you just look again at the um, this corrupt and corrosive presidential election. You'll see it everywhere. But what do you say to the the average person mm-hmm. who's going to vote in this election? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe um, who says, well, you know, um, first of all. Look at what capitalism has wrought. Look at what it's given us. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, you wouldn't have that uh, digital watch and those glasses. And, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have your house with, without capitalism. Um, waving to people. Mm-hmm. You know those people? Yes. They work for the Lancaster County Conservancy, okay, so and I'm a, a land steward for local so they're good, conservancy they're, properties. As opposed to the West Virginia license plate <laughs> truck that drove by, which you waved to to be polite, but yes. really wanted to blow them up with an These RPG. These people I like. These people you like. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Capitalism. Right. So, right. like, the average person would say, well, you know what? Um, there's such a thing as the American dream. It really exists, and capitalism is what is at its foundation. And, um, you know, you, you... Yeah, thanks. You can um, work real hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Capitalism offers you that opportunity, and it's the people who you mentioned earlier who are... That's, ba- that's a myth. Why is that a myth? Because it's not, not everyone has the same opportunity as everyone else. And it's funny to me how this just shows how powerful myth can be. This keeps coming up in these conversations. This is why I push this. Because I want to hear your answer to this. I've asked this to several people. They've brought it up themselves. Well, and it's going to be disjointed because I haven't articulated it before except for between my husband and I chatting about it. But I feel as though the American dream is a total lie. Um, A couple of people, like the percentage of people who even have the possibility who have succeeded in that is so small. And a lot of it's luck, a lot of it's connections. But... The average American has absolutely no way to do that, especially minorities who don't have... Like, I, I'm privileged. I know I'm privileged. My father paid for my undergrad. Um, my husband and I worked our way through two master's degrees, a third master's degree, a Ph.D. So between us, we have two bachelor's, three master's, and a Ph.D., and then higher ed classes on top of that and certificates. And we could only do that... And a partridge in a pear tree. Exactly, all that. Um, <laughs> Because we're privileged. 
I started out with a father who had his own business, who owned this home, who worked hard, but the economy was different than it is now. Like he worked, my stepmother didn't work, and he made enough money to support all of us, to send my sister and I to undergrad, and died with $2 million in the bank, which isn't a hell of a lot of money now, but it was enough money. He gave a million of it away. <laughs> he, wow. um, he gave half of it to charity. Wow. He gave half of what was left to his girlfriend and split the other half between my sister and I. Okay. And I took all of it and bought this property because I couldn't afford to buy this property any other way. Right. So we own this land and we're cash poor. But I own this land. A lot of people will never own land. They can't afford to own land. So I'm privileged. I have all the equity in this place. And that's amazing. If I needed to, I could sell this. I had a father who had money I could always fall back on. I know so many people who don't have that. We have no school debt. We never have had school debt. We have worked our way through every single degree and never taken out loans for any of it. Same with me. Not everyone can do that. I realize that's only because I'm privileged. And I, I don't feel guilty about that, but I am very aware that most students today can't do that. The, the thing that I always come up with is you started to talk about this and I want you to talk about a little more like race, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're black or brown in this country, your chances of getting ahead, Mm -hmm. even getting anywhere, are nearly nil. And I I put this question to students in the past and it's a thing that I I use just as like a marker. I say, all right, here's the deal. You've just moved to a new town. Mm -hmm. You're looking for a job. Mm -hmm. Would you rather be black or white? And they stop dead and they're like, they know mm-hmm. the answer. They right. know the answer. Right. And some of them will own up to it and mm-hmm. some of them won't. But I will say to them, you know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole story stems from there. You know why? Because even in black communities, I wonder who owns the businesses. They're whites. We just watched Good Hair. Got to watch it. What is Good Chris Hair? Rock, documentary on black women's hair okay, and all of the toxics they put in their hair to make it look. And what the, the language they use is more natural because mm-hmm. the nappy, natural nappy, they is, wouldn't say it's natural, is, is inappropriate. It's yeah. not as beautiful. It's got to look like nice. white women's hair. They spend one to $3,000 for one weave right. for their hair. So it looks more like good hair, which is white people's hair. Mm-hmm. And the companies who own and advertise and push this change are all owned by white people. And I think, seriously, down here in the country, we have Lancaster County Conservancy property that is open to the public. And I have neighbors who bitch about those Puerto Ricans who come in from the city because they destroy it. Well, anybody who comes in with high traffic is what's destroying the land, not the nationality or the race of the people who are on that land. Yeah. You know, and, it, and, and I had someone just the other day who said, oh, yeah, I got a phone call from our neighbor because he said someone was walking through the yard and they were of... Well, they were people of color, and they shouldn't have been around here. Why not? Yeah. Like, you know, what is that? Um, is it just ignorance? I mean, I grew up here, so no, I hatred. understand it's that. Hatred. But is it hatred out of ignorance? It's, it's taught. It's, it's, it's built in. I lived here. I was taught it. I don't before. have that hatred, and I well, never have. I know I'm prejudiced. I mean, I know we all are. I think we're all prejudiced. Like, I just, see. and for me. Deep-seated racism is not Hatred is different. Hatred. For me... I, I, and I'm probably naive about this because I'm white and privileged. I feel like I've just been learning how that affects how I think about everyone else, the white privilege. Uh, it's, it's really, for me, the last year or two. Yeah, it was seminary for me. That it's begun to, and it, it's Ferguson. Yeah. It's vigils in Lancaster City. It's meeting up with people who I never would have run in the same circles as even 
five or six years ago. Yeah. Um, it's really new for me. Yeah. Um, but I'm finding that more and more there are people like you and, and other people who I'm just sort of falling into their laps in a, to, you know, in a, in a sense who are like, yeah, and they're not in any way. And a lot of these people are black. I, I, and a lot, none of them are like, what took you so long? Or right. like, none yeah. of them are judgmental about it. No. It's just like, yep. It's about time. Or not even that. Yeah. It's not even that. It's just like, yeah, let's talk about this. I feel like that. <laughs> and I, I owe them such a, a such a debt of gratitude because their embracing of me right. seems almost too generous. Right. So, I highly recommend a book called um, The Republic of Nature. Okay. And it's Who an wrote that? environmental history of the United States. Okay. It's powerful and it covers a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of how we have exploited land and people over and over again. So it's they, a history. It's a part of our history. You brought it's a part us of back our makeup. Exactly where I want to yeah. go. So here we are at the stream. I hope the stream, the babbling stream is being captured. I hope mm. that I captured the sounds of your dog kind of yeah. jumping through. <laughs> so like w- pick one lesson or pick one I don't just one fragment of that um, compendium to share where uh, something was eye-opening or um, particularly meaningful to you from that book? Yeah, I hadn't... I, it, part of it is what the book does is it, it puts it all in one place and says it very clearly. Europeans came here and they killed and they conquered and they raped the land. They cleared the land to build. They killed natives who were on the land, who didn't own the land, and we act as if this land was discovered, as if nothing was here before we got here. It's an arrogant approach to the land and to the people who were here, and we violated them ever since. We've broken treaty after treaty. We've um, genocide. I mean, we don't talk about genocide. And then we bring slaves in. When we can't do all the work ourselves, we bring slaves in to do the work for us in the fields and pretend that we're fighting a civil war over economics. Well, economics because we want to make more money for ourselves and we can do that by exploiting these African Americans. Yeah, like it's the whole story. But what this book does, it just goes from the very beginning and names the exploitation of land in ways that I hadn't thought about. Like I thought about what we did to human beings, but I hadn't thought about the raping of the land in the same way. For example, like some... I read it a year ago, okay. Um, some, some kind of maybe technological advancement that people... Well, that's the thing too that I'm reading, yeah, that... Any advancement, technologically, any civilized um, culture, exploits the land. Like, the whole mentality is, what is civilized? Oh, we have cities. Which means we've cut down all the trees and poured, ro- made roads and sidewalks and buildings. That, like that, that, it's like an upside-down way of thinking even about culture. Like, what is culture? Culture is about cities, where we cut down the trees and get rid of the grass and we put in buildings that somehow that is superior to where we're standing right now among all of this. And it's a, it's a shameful thing to me. And what do I do with that? So what do you do with it? And, and, and I'm hoping maybe there's a more positive, optimistic. <laughs> I mean, no, you, you've come, like, we're like, again, we're no. like the sheeprock. Yeah. The sheeprock is. I do a lot of meditation. And I feel like what I find mostly is, again, I can't change the world. I can't take responsibility for the world. I can only take responsibility for me. I can only treat other people with respect. Um, I can only control me. And I'm a counselor by education. I've done a lot of counseling. And it's one of the things, like, we, you work with people. Why do you carry guilt? Like, all that does is destroy you now. 
Like, deal with reality. Reality is where you are now, what can you do to change it, and to be aware of what your limitations are, what you can't change in yourself, and how to embrace that. And that's hard, too. But in this world, find places and people who want to preserve and want to celebrate and enjoy life and enjoy creation, and creation as in all that is living. I say that as if a God created it, which I doubt, I really believe, but I believe in the unity of all living things and some connectedness in that. And for me, to try and teach that to my children and teach that to other people that I come in contact with, that I believe in the connectedness of all created things. And if I really believe that, I live and I treat other created things, other living things differently. And that's where it starts. And there's our dog back, including our dog. I would never hit my dog, you know? I know. I, yeah, that it, she lives and she has her own personality and she's part hound and she loves to run off and chase deer. She always comes back. She never catches the deer. And my kids get upset that I don't punish her. I was like, you know what? Do I punish you like that when you don't listen to me? If I punished you for not listening the way you want me to punish the dog for not listening, all I would do is punish you. Like Some things have to be accepted with their limitations and with their boundaries, with who they are and what they are. And so somehow finding a way in this world to accept my own limitations and those around me and do what we can that's good within those limitations. And I think there's a lot of good we can do in those boundaries. Thanks for listening to this episode of What We Will Abide. Remember, you can now subscribe at iTunes, and you can subscribe and leave comments at sandschindler.com.